Amen. Thank you, Carol. What a wonderful message. What a wonderful invitation and song. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if you are burdened down with guilt and with fear, where your soul is going to spend eternity and of your sin against God, you can come to Jesus and place your faith in him and rest assured that he will cleanse you from your sin and give you everlasting life if you will simply ask him. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 10, beginning in this morning to look in verse 23 and going down through verse 43. The Jewish element of the church, remember the church was started on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Jews from all over the civilized world had come to Jerusalem for this celebration, Pentecost, Jewish celebration. And as the gospel begins to spread, there's a question that they struggled with actually all the way through most of the first century AD. And that is the question concerning Gentiles, such as can Gentiles be saved? Do we even witness to Gentiles? And if Gentiles can be saved, then what do they have to do in order to be acceptable to the church? This account in Acts chapter 10 and verse and chapter part of chapter 11 is given to address this question. Paul actually writes, matter of fact, in his epistles of the Galatians, that's the main theme is that, look, Judaizers, you don't have to add Jewish customs and, and traditions and observances in order as a Gentile to be saved. It is by grace through faith, Ephesians tells us, that we have eternal life. It is only when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross alone that we have everlasting life. So this is vital. And this account of Peter being called by God to go to Cornelius and to his household to proclaim the gospel is something, this account, that the apostles would go back to and recount and remind the church God saved Cornelius and his entire household. God saves Gentiles. There was an alcoholic many years ago by the name of Mel. Mel got so low in his life that at his baby daughter's funeral, when he had the last private viewing of his baby there in that casket, and everybody else was gone, he quietly slipped off the shoes from her corpse and put them in his pocket so he could buy alcohol. But later on, God saved Mel Trotter and he started the Pacific Garden Mission. And a man who was a drunkard and who was a thief and who was bound by alcohol and addicted and in sin and without hope gave hope to hundreds of thousands of people over the years through the Pacific Garden Mission and through the radio program Unshackled. He had been a thief. He had been selfish. Now he's giving. He who had been Addicted preaches freedom in Christ. Can God save alcoholics who are thieves and get so low they'll steal the shoes off their baby girl's corpse to buy another drink? Absolutely. We sang this morning, Amazing Grace. Do you realize the author of Amazing Grace had been a slave trader? And a man who had sold others into slavery and profited through their slavery was saved and transformed by the grace of God and proclaimed great freedom in Jesus Christ.
And the question today is not, does God save Gentiles? Most of us are Gentiles. We say, of course, God saves Gentiles. But can God save liars and, tur- and turn them into proclaimers of the truth of the gospel? Can God save murderers who get saved and proclaim the way to eternal life? Can God save people whose skins are covered with tattoos and body piercings? Whose mouths are blasphemous and their life is an obnoxious offense to a holy God? And can he save them? Can God save people who are in the depths of the LGBT community and redeem them? Yes, he can. And he is. And he will. You see all of a sudden how it went from, yeah, that was them, and duh, that's an easy question, to all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute, in the real world in which we live, God loves the people I just mentioned as much as he loves you and me. And his hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear heavy that he cannot hear. God is saving people in the LGBTQ community, and he's pulling them out of that. Because when God saves you, he transforms you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. God doesn't save liars and allow them to stay liars. He doesn't save murderers and allow them to stay murderers. He doesn't save adulterers and allow them to stay adulterers. God transforms them. And makes them a new creation in him. And that new man which is created after the image of Christ is one that is holy. Now we are not perfect as Christ is perfect. But we have the desire to pursue his holiness. And to become as close to his perfection as we can in this earth. Looking forward to the time when we will receive a glorified body and be in his presence. And we will then be perfect even as he is perfect. We shall see him as he is. And we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. But in the nasty now and now, God is saving folks all over the world. He takes cannibals and turns them into pastors through the incredible transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God takes slave traders, turns them into preachers of the gospel. Have we lost our confidence in the power of God to save? Have we lost our faith in the power of God not only to save, but to transform? And here's a convicting question. If God saves some people full of tattoos and body piercings, etc., etc., if God saves people that were in the LGBTQ community and they come out of that when they're saved, Are we ready to accept them into our membership at Berean Baptist Church and love them and help them to grow and support them and walk through them? Because just because they're saved doesn't mean they're not still tempted to be drawn back into sin. We all have a sin nature. We all know how that goes. We all still, even though we're saved, have our times of failures. But are we really willing to incorporate those kind of people into our local assembly? And that's addressed right here. You stop and you think about this. Cornelius was, had been a, gen, a, a, a pagan, a Gentile. He believed in many gods. He was a Roman centurion. Rome worshipped all kinds of gods, including the Caesars. They were considered gods. But God had brought him into Israel and at Caesarea. He began 
to be exposed to the Jewish religion and became a God-fearer, though he was not believing on Christ as his Messiah yet, he deeply respected the Jewish faith. He even financially supported the local synagogues and he was respectful and, and there was a desire in his heart to learn more. And so, as we saw last week in the passage, to those who respond to the limited revelation that God gives to them in, in an accepting way, those who respond positively to that limited revelation, God will give more specific revelation. And so one day God sends an angel to Cornelius and says, hey, listen, uh, your, your alms and your prayers have come up before me. You are seeking after me, and I'm going to honor your seeking after me. Send to Joppa. Send men to Joppa. Go to the house of a man named Simon the Tanner. He dwells by the sea. And ask for Simon Peter. And ask him to come, and he will show you what you need to understand. And so, that's what Cornelius does. And we pick it up in verse 23 this morning of our text at this connection between Peter and these Gentile men who come uh, from Cornelius at God's command. Look, if you would, in verse 23. The Bible says, Then he, this is Peter, he called them in and lodged them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. I want you to see, first of all, Peter's hospitality. You see, no self-respecting Jew would have invited somebody into their home, either their own home or the home of another Jew. They would have said, well, it's good to meet you. Uh, Let's stand out here. I can't invite you inside. Okay? But they certainly would not have invited them in. They certainly would not have eaten them. They would not have hosted them and put them up in their home. They just said, well, there's a nice motel down, a nice inn down there down the road. You know, I know it hasn't been invented yet, but they have air conditioning. Uh, Go down there. That's what a self-respecting Jew would have done. But Peter invites them in and he hosts them and he lodges them there. It's showing that he's literally, it's, it means to entertain as a guest. This is something that, that, that Peter, well, it's, well, another author put it better. He said, no Orthodox Jew would have invited Gentiles into his house. He would not have sat down at the same table with them. He would not have had fellowship with them. By entertaining these Gentile guests, Peter went against the customs and traditions of Israel, but not against God's word. I had Pastor Mike this morning read Isaiah chapter 55. Did you catch that God's invitation is not based on the condition of you being Jewish or of meeting certain requirements? But just as the hymn writer said, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that is the invitation. And so Peter, having already, God had told him to go to, to, to Joppa and to stay with Simon the Tanner. Remember that the Jews believed that that, that business uh, uh, of tanning hides and all that and dealing with dead animals made you ceremonially unclean. Um, that even a girl who was engaged to a guy, you know, if she found out that he was a tanner, um, that, that the Jews would have encouraged her to break off that engagement. And so here is Peter, who, is, who has been a Jew, very careful to observe and had deep respect for the Old Testament scriptures and all of the ceremonial laws that the Jews were in that dispensation under the law to observe. He actually goes and he stays there at God's command and God's beginning to prepare him in steps. And then, of course, he has the vision on the rooftop of the animals, both clean and unclean, being let down in the same sheet. And the voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he first thinks it's a test. Not so, Lord, not me. I've never eaten anything. Nothing unclean's ever passed through these lips. 
And he hears God say to him, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And while he's wondering, what in the world does this mean? He's beginning to understand, but God's doing this work in his heart. This is where these men, he goes down and they're calling for him. And when he sees them, these Gentile people, he invites them in. God's been doing a work in his heart. So Peter's hospitality, but also Peter's humility. Look back in verse 23. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. You know, Peter's obedience to God in going with these men took some humility, especially when you consider all of the criticism that he was exposing himself to by his Jewish brethren, by Jewish Christians, and, and by Jews who, were, who had not yet accepted Christ as Savior. And Peter's really opening himself up to be vulnerable to the persecution and the criticism of others. But you know what? When God commands, it doesn't matter how humiliated others may make you how much they may persecute you or how they may treat you or misunderstand you when god says go you go but only a humble person will obey that in spite of the fact they may face great criticism and persecution peter's humility is exemplified in the fact that he obeyed the direct command of god and he goes but i want you to know it was not easy for peter to do that it took the grace of god to enable him to obey this command And then he takes certain brethren with him. These are born-again believers, Jewish believers with him. You know why? Because Peter wanted some other eyewitnesses. He didn't say, I am the great apostle Peter. I was the spokesman for the apostles. Um, I was one of the inner circle. Um, And uh, Jesus directly commissioned me. My word ought to be good enough. If I say, well, my experience is then that ought to be enough. No, he was humble enough to say, hey, listen, I, I, am, I, am a, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ like other disciples of Jesus Christ. Yes, God has given me the privilege and the responsibility of being an apostle. But you know what? Uh, I am not above having other eyewitnesses. I believe that they need to be there to verify what I have said. I'm not going to be authoritative and said, I've said it, so it must be so, and you just better believe it and accept me at my word. There was a humility about Peter that he took other brethren with him. I believe there's also accountability there that, that Peter himself was not above being held accountable. Hey, quick question. Dads, are you above being accountable to your children? Are you above being accountable to another believer? One of the greatest blessings in your spiritual life can be when you find an accountability partner, men with men, ladies with ladies, somebody that you can trust will keep a confidence. They're not going to betray that that personal information and the things that you are struggling with in your life that you need someone to pray with you about and hold you accountable to. You write those things down. You give them that list. You meet on a regular basis. You're praying for each other every day. They give you a list. You're sharing these things. You're asking how these things are going. You rejoice in the victory. And when you need it, you can give each other a swift kick when you need it in love. Right? But none of us ought to say, I don't need that. We all need that. Peter's humility is exemplified in his obedience to God no matter what criticism or persecution he was going to be exposed to and the fact that he took with him eyewitnesses that were there both for uh, being witnesses and being accountability partners with him. Third of all, look at Cornelius' anticipation in verse 24. And on the morrow, after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius awaited for them and had called together his kinsmen and his near friends. 
when God moves powerfully in a person's life, like God had moved so powerfully and specifically in Cornelius' life, we often most naturally want others to also see and experience the supernatural working of God. And so that's what Cornelius did. He gathered his friends, he gathered relatives and family. And you know what? There was also faith in the promise of God. Because God, God said, Cornelius, send your men to Joppa, to Simon the Tanner, ask for Simon Peter, who's staying with Simon the Tanner, and ask him to come, and he will explain those things to you that you are searching for. So by faith, Cornelius says, well, I know that it's a two-day trip, and I sent these guys then. They should be arriving back here in Caesarea about this particular time. And so he went and he gathered by faith, believing that Peter was going to be obedient to God's call, for God had told him to send for Peter. So he was anticipating with excitement and by faith that Peter was coming and he gathered others with him. Hey, you know what? That's, that ought to be a rebuke even to us who are saved. Here's Cornelius, still yet unsaved, but searching after God and had such a heart for God and was so excited to hear the message, he wanted to invite others to hear the message so God could work in their hearts. When's the last time you invited somebody to come attend a service at Berean Baptist Church? When's the last time you invited somebody to come to an evangelistic Bible study with you? When's the last time you made an effort to get somebody else to participate with you in hearing from God? Cornelius was excited about this. He realized the importance of it. And he was ready to hear from God. So he anticipated it. Fourth, look at Cornelius' reverence in verse 25. The Bible says, and as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now, it was not worship in the way that you're thinking. Let, let me read this statement. I think it will help you. Cornelius was not paying divine honor to Peter, but he still was going beyond the limit of what a minister of God or even an angel would be appropriate for the, to, to them to accept that expression of, of honor or reverence. This act of Cornelius does credit to the fact that he was humble and of a willing spirit. All right? So when Peter comes in, when he kneels before him, here's a centurion who had men under him in command. He was used to being one in authority. Yet when Peter comes in, in front of his family, in front of his relatives, whoever he had invited, he bows the knee before to give proper respect or honor to Peter. And so that does him great credit, but it does Peter great credit also when he says, hey, stand up. I'm just a man like you. Look, if you would, with me in verse 26. But Peter took him up saying, stand up. I myself also am a man. He's not really rebuking Cornelius here because Cornelius is not worshiping him, but he's just saying, look, I'm just a man like you. I, I, you know, uh, I, I am not, you don't need to reverence me that way. Why? Because he wanted God to receive the glory. I heard a story one time of uh, some pastors that were uh, preaching, some evangelists and pastors that were preaching at a big conference. And uh, the guy that was kind of moderating the conference got up to introduce the next speaker, and he went on for like 10 minutes just with this flowering review, praising and building this preacher to the sky. And, uh, and when the preacher came to the pulpit, he made this simple statement. He said, there are no great men of God. There are just men who serve a great God. And you stop and you think about the apostle Paul. He said, I am the least of all of the apostles. He said, I am the chiefest of sinners. 
Paul said, I, I am a man. Peter here says, I'm just a man like you are. He doesn't say, yes, thank you. I am the chiefest of the apostles, the spokesman for the apostles. You know, uh, yes, you know, Christ commissioned me, and uh, thank you for showing me the respect that I deserve. Oh, no. No, no, no. If you'd asked Peter, if you'd asked Paul, hey, are you a great man of God? If you asked any man that we would consider a truly great man of God, are you a great man of God? He would have said, no, I'm just a servant of the Lord. And you know what, folks? That's what all of us are. We are what we are only by the grace of God. There are no great men of God. There are only men who serve a great God. And Peter's humility here and his gracious deflection of Cornelius' reverence is a great example to us. The apostles always sought to glorify God and deflected all praise and honor to him. God gets all the credit. Hey, listen, if God uses Brian Baptist Church to reach our community and world for the gospel, anything and everything that is of eternal spiritual value that happens is not to my credit or to Pastor Blake's credit or to Pastor Wyman's credit or to Pastor Bowman's credit or even to Pastor Sweat's credit. It is all to God's credit. We're just the servants. Ones that have been equipped and commissioned by God to minister his word. Same as you. You may not have been commissioned to be a pastor. You may not have been called to vocational ministry. But all Christians are called to serve God with their life on a full-time basis. And all of us are merely sinners saved by grace. I love one person's description of sharing the gospel. He said, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Amen. And Peter has a gracious deflection here. Then I want you to see Peter's greeting to this group in verses 28 and 29. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many that were coming together. So he stands there talking now some with Cornelius. Then he comes into the house. Again, another thing that no respectable Jew would have done. And I imagine as Peter confidently walks in, those witnesses who are also believers but were Jewish and still very Jewish in their cultural thinking, when Peter goes talking with Cornelius and they go walking into the house, I think those guys that, are, that, are, uh, that, that, that came with him from Joppa kind of um, look at each other and shrug their shoulders and then they go in too. But I think there was probably a little bit of a hesitation on their part at first to go in. But Peter's greeting... And as he talked with them, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come to one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying as soon as I was sent for. I asked therefore for what intent ye sent for me. So Peter's teachable spirit would encourage others to have the same response to God's word. He says, look, God told me to come. I'm here. You know that under Old Testament law, uh, it is taught that uh, we're not supposed to do this. Now, was that actually completely accurate? Actually, though that was not forbidden in the Old Testament, technically... The Jews understood that God wanted them to be separate from the Gentile nations in the fact that they were not to intermarry 
with the Gentile nations. And they did not want, God did not want their hearts drawn into idolatry. God did not want them to become like other nations. You remember when they asked for a king, why they wanted a king to rule over them? Because all the other nations around them had kings. And that's why they wanted a king. So Israel already had their heart drawn for the wrong reasons in what they wanted. And, when, and, and, and even we see that they did through compromises and through um, poor leadership in the kings, both of the north, northern and southern kingdom after Israel was divided, that through that poor leadership and the peoples following after their lusts, violated the clear commands of scripture so then the rabbis were like well now let, let's real hey look you know it's kind of like eve in the garden when god said you shall not eat you can eat from any of the free fruit in the tree of the garden of eden but what did he say you were to not do what did god say you're not supposed to do you're not supposed to eat it do we have it recorded in scripture that god said you shall not touch it but what did Eve say? We shall not eat it, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. Where did she get that from? My personal thought is that she got it from Adam. Because God told Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think Adam told Eve, hey, listen, we can eat from any tree in the garden of Eden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Matter of fact, hey, let's not even touch it. If you don't touch it, you won't take it. Good idea? Yeah, but that which would have been a good idea or a suggestion or an application, she quoted as being the very direct command of God. Do you see how Satan could have manipulated that? Yeah, go ahead, just touch it. Don't even eat it, just touch it. See if you fall over dead. And so some of these well-meaning teachings had developed into traditions or teachings that they had equated with scriptures. As a matter of fact, Jesus confronted the Pharisees and he says, you have equated the tradition of the elders to have the same authority as the written scriptures and thereby you have voided the entire law. And Peter says, look, you know that it's not lawful. Well, it was not lawful according to the teaching of the rabbis, but if you go back and you study through the Old Testament scriptures, why did God entrust to the nation of Israel the truth? So that all nations could come by faith and worship the one true God and be saved. And yet Peter had this teachable spirit and said, hey, listen, you know what? There was a misunderstanding on my part and God has shown me not to call unclean what he has called clean. Peter is stating that here, he is here because God clearly sent for him. And he said, I came immediately. He said, there was no back talk. Now, there was a little back talk, was there not, when he was up on the rooftop before? When he's having the vision, because I believe he thought it was a test. And when, this, when, when the sheet comes down and there's clean and unclean animals in it, and he hears the voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He said, not so, Lord. I think he was thinking, this is a test. And it's repeated three times because Peter wasn't quite getting it. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. All right? So that by the time when God's Holy Spirit says to him, men are coming, sent from Cornelius, you go with them, there was no back talk. There was no arguing. He came immediately without argument. And that's what he's telling them. Hey, listen, God had to teach me, and, and, I, and so I came without back talk. Even that shows Peter's growth and his humility in this. And Peter's question, he said, why have you sent for me? It shows that he is not presumptuous. 
okay? But it also shows that he's looking to begin to build a connection or common ground. How do you make friends? Well, if you're in kindergarten, you go up to someone and say, hi, want to be my friend? You know, when you can write, you have a little piece of paper and you put two little boxes and you have yes or no. And you say, will you be my friend? Check yes or no. And you hand it to the person and they check yes or no. All right. That's their application to be your friend. <laughs> but how do we make friends? A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And one of the ways you show yourself friendly is that you show an interest in the other person. Therefore, if you want to make friends, and by the way, if you want to get into people's lives and make friends for the sake of the gospel and build relational bridges to share the gospel, ask questions about them. Show that you care about them. Ask, start maybe with some surface level questions. Hey, what do you do? What do you do for a living? Do you like your job? What do you do specifically within your job? Hey, what's your family like? How did you grow up? Where did you grow up? You know, different things like that. And you begin to ask those surface level questions. Then you begin to get into some deeper questions as the Spirit of God would guide you and the conversation may turn a little bit deeper. And over time, as you're asking questions and you're getting more familiar and getting to know people, then you can ask deeper level questions to the point where then you've built a common ground and you can share the gospel. Now, God had already been working in Cornelius. And I think that Cornelius was kind of sharing this with his family and friends of what God was doing. And so, hey, man, when, when God spoke directly to him and told him that, that that here's this Peter who's coming to tell them the way to know God. He gathers all these friends together. They're anticipating it. They're ready for it. But Peter's building a common ground. He says, well, why? Why did, why did you send for me? So look then, if you would, at Cornelius' answer in verses 30 to 33. And Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. So what right there does Peter find out about Cornelius, whom he'd never met. God just said, go to Cornelius. Well, he finds out that he's a man who fasts and prays. It means he was serious about seeking after God. And while he is fasting and praying, and he even mentions the time, which is interesting, we won't take the time right now to connect, but if you go back and study earlier in the passage, you see God's perfect timing in all of this. And now he's working in Cornelius, how he's working in Peter to prepare them to come together in the perfect time when both Peter has been prepared by the Lord to share the gospel with a Gentile, and this Gentile Roman centurion is being prepared to listen to the gospel. And so then Cornelius goes on and he says this, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. So now Peter realizes, yeah, God, God had told Peter, I've sent him. And now, you know, I, I, I told Cornelius to send men to you. So go with these men because I've sent them. And now Cornelius is confirming Peter's experience and his message from God. So you see, there's even more common ground that's being built and a foundation laid. And I'm sure that as Peter is hearing Cornelius saying this, his heart is getting more and more excited. At first, there's a little trepidation maybe, but now, man, there's an excitement building and this awe is just, just kind of filling his heart and mind. God saves Gentiles and God's going to use me to proclaim the gospel. And there's this whole new avenue to reach the rest of the world with this gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's listening to Cornelius say this. And then in verse 32, send, uh, send therefore to Joppa and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. 
He is lodged in the house of one Simon and Tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately therefore I sent to thee. Remember, Peter says, I immediately came when God called me. And Peter say, and Cornelius saying, yeah, well, I immediately sent men when God told me to send them. You see all of this that God is working? You see this common ground? And Peter asked a question, and he got more of an answer, I think, than what he bargained for. But it gave him so much to understand and a great common ground. And there's other people. There's these, there's these Jewish Christians from Joppa, these witnesses that are hearing all of this. Because I'm sure Peter was telling them what was happening on the way when he asked them to come with him. And now they're hearing from Cornelius a confirmation of this. The people that uh, Cornelius had gathered together, they're hearing the full story as well. So there's this common ground. There's this expectation that is building. Now, therefore, Cornelius says, now, therefore, we are all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. You know what I, I, I think as a, as a preacher of the word? I wish that was every person's attitude and expectation when they came to church. Because I'm a realist enough to know that not everybody comes to church to hear the word of God that I'm going to preach. You're here, you're listening, and, and I appreciate that you're here. And some of you are really hungry to hear what God really has to say. Some of you are here to hear what you want God to say, and you're listening for that. Cornelius came with an open heart. I want to hear what God has to say. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. We are all here present to hear what God has told you to say. We're not here just for friends. We're not here for business connections. We're not here for a social gathering. We're not here to feel good and leave here feeling better about ourselves. We came to hear the word of God. We're present before, and, he's, and listen, he says, we are present before God. There is a reverence and a worshipfulness about Cornelius who at this point is not even a born-again Christian yet, although he's about to be. To hear all things that are commanded thee of God. What's he saying? Our hearts are wide open. We are ready to hear. We're listening to the whole thing. And so look at Peter's preaching, and this is the rest of our passage, the message now, as we read this, remember, this is the first gospel message recorded in the scriptures to the Gentiles. So listen to this. This is amazing. Read along with me. Then Peter opened his mouth. That is, he stands up to publicly declare God's word and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. That is, God does not reject people who are sincerely searching based on their ethnicity, their social status, their financial status, or any other kind of status. The word, which verse 36, which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached, that's John the Baptist, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he arose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which hath ordained, is ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and dead, to give him all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. What a great gospel message. And there's some, some things, some elements in this message I want you to pick up on. First of all, Peter's expressing in verse 35 that God will not exclude anyone from salvation based on nationality or status. Listen, please, I, wa I want to read this verbatim just to make sure I'm expressing myself clearly to you. Because some would interpret this, that as long as you are a sincere religious person, you are accepted of God, that is, you have eternal life. And that's not what Peter is saying. So listen carefully to this statement. No man can fear God and work righteousness and be accepted without the gospel. The gospel that the promise of Messiah in the Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. The sinner does righteousness when he repents. The sinner, the contrite sinner, does righteousness when he believes and accepts God's pardon in Jesus Christ. And then the born-again believer does righteousness when by faith he walks in the ways of God's commands, following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and submitting to the authority of the Scriptures. So Peter is saying, look, God knows that you are sincerely looking after him. And it doesn't matter how you right now identify. And it doesn't matter what your past is. And it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. If you are sincerely searching after God, you will be found of him. If you will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by or but through me. So you cannot get to Jesus through your sincere good works, religious activities, and pious spirit. You must come to God and be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. There's only one avenue to heaven, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter's an eyewitnesses, and he recounts the earthly ministry of Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection. And he shares details of that, like we, we saw him, we talked with him, we ate with him after his resurrection. Those are details that only an eyewitness would have the specific knowledge of. So he's verifying himself and other of the apostles as eyewitnesses, both of all Jesus' ministry of Jesus' death on the cross, of his resurrection. That not only did he do good and heal people and preach truth, but as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, he sacrificed himself as the once for all, final, full payment sacrifice for man's sin. He died, was buried, he rose again. He is the living Son of God, has the power and the authority to cleanse you from your sin and to give you everlasting life. And it is through preaching to folks to believe on who he is and what he's done that your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. Peter declares Jesus to be the judge at the final judgment. And that forgiveness of sins only comes through personal faith in him. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 5? 
He says the Father has handed all authority and judgment to the Son. In Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne judgment, as God sits upon that throne, from whose faith all creation would flee away in terror of his majesty, where the dead, small and great, from the most powerful, influential, wealthy, popular person to ever walk the earth to the most obscure, ignored person to crawl into a corner. No person escapes God's judgment. And that judgment of where you will spend eternity is based on if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ who can cleanse you and forgive you of your sin. But you know who it is that sits on the great white throne judgment? It is Jesus Christ himself. The same one who died on the cross in love for you, who suffered unspeakable agony for you, who conquered death and rose again for you, who extends those pierced hands to you to say, come to me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I bore your sin on the cross. I will take the burden of your sin. I took your condemnation upon myself that you do not have to be condemned to eternal death. I died to give you eternal life. Trust me. And he offers that. And you reject him. And he offers again. And you reject him. And he offers again. And in love and patience, as long as you live, there is opportunity for you to change your heart and mind. That's repentance. And then to put your faith in Jesus Christ and simply call on him and ask him to do what he promised to do, to cleanse you from your sin and to give you everlasting life. But there's coming a day when it will be too late for you. Hebrews 9, 27 says, and it is appointed unto men once to die. You have a death date coming, my friend. You have a birth date. You have a death date. And when your soul leaves your body and your body physically dies, Your eternal destiny is forever sealed. Mine is sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ. Is your fate sealed? If you're a believer, your fate's been sealed. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. John 3, 36, he who has the Son has everlasting life. My eternal fate is sealed for eternal life, for life with God beyond anything I can possibly yet imagine that I could never experience in this life. And I get to enjoy for all of eternity, and so can you. And your fate is not sealed if you've rejected Jesus Christ. Do you realize that in the ancient world, most of the polytheistic, that is the many gods, the pagan worship, do you realize who they were really worshiping? Whose supernatural powers were they experiencing? Some figment of their imagination of a God that they made up? No. I believe there's demonic power behind false gods. I believe that idolatry is a form of Satan worship. Can God save Satan worshipers and transform them into Christ worshipers and Christ proclaimers? Yes. Yes. He did it all through this ancient world. He's done it all through the ages to this point. And God will continue to save. You can come to Christ today and be born again. If you're a born again believer, maybe there's somebody in your community or somebody at work 
that you have avoided sharing the gospel with them because you have written them off? Would you today ask God's forgiveness for that? And ask God to give you the compassion of Christ for them and the boldness of the Holy Spirit for them and ask God to help you to share the gospel with them as he would build that opportunity? Would you make the commitment even now, right now this morning, to say, God, I'm going to start asking them questions and I'm going to seek to reach out to them to be their friend and they may reject me, but I'm going to keep at it. And Lord, those hearts that you open up, I will share more of the gospel as I can. And as they respond to that revelation and their hearts remain open, I will share more by your grace. God, use me to see folks saved around me that maybe other people have written off because God, you write off nobody while there's still life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. It's easy for us to say, yes, of course Gentiles can be saved. Anybody can be saved. But when we look around in our neighborhoods, in our community, and at work, when we see the atrocities of sin around the world, sometimes we hesitate at who we really believe you can save. We hesitate to obey with humility and to go and to reach out. Peter understood that you called no man unclean, that there was nobody off limits to your gospel, and that he should go. And Lord, as we look next week, should you tarry your coming and you keep us alive to gather together again. And we look at the wonderful work that you did in Cornelius and in his household and in Peter and in the witnesses at Joppa. We ask that we would see that same work reflected in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, and in this world. You've placed us here in this time and in this place to reach our world with your gospel. May we be faithful as we are commanded in Mark 16, 15 to preach the gospel to every creature. And for every person here today or watching by way of live stream that does not have that absolute confidence, assurance that their eternal destiny is sealed through faith in Jesus Christ. They know they have eternal life. They know their sins are forever forgiven. Father, would you draw them to your son in love? Holy Spirit, convince them of their sin, of their need of your righteousness, and that you make that available through faith. May they be warned that there is a judgment on their sin in eternal death, but that you bore that judgment on the cross on their behalf, if only they will come to you in repentance and faith. And may we who are believers be bold and confident in your power and in the truth of your word. And may we be humbly obedient. Prepare us, Lord, to share the gospel in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed. Our pianist is going to play a hymn of invitation. I've already given the invitation. You know what to do. Now just respond. I'd only add this. After our pianist is done, I, I will pray and then we'll stand and we'll dismiss with a closing hymn. I'll be back in the connection point. If you'd like someone to take the word of God and show you how you can settle the matter of your eternal destiny, I would be glad to do that with you today. You come back and see me. If you're a born-again believer and God's worked in your heart, you made some choices today, I would love to hear about that so I can pray with you, rejoice with you. If there's anything I can do to help you in your walk with the Lord, I'd love to hear about it so I can help you. Please come and see me. Let's now bow before the Lord and respond to him as our pianist plays our hymn of invitation.